Now, as we come to Mark chapter 14 and this last section of the chapter, we're going to take a look at the trials that Jesus faced before the religious authorities. Now, I say trials because even though we're just going to read about one of them this morning, we only get the fullest picture of what happened to Jesus on that night before he was crucified by putting together the testimony from all four Gospels. Actually, there were three different phases of the trials that he had before the religious authorities, and there were also three different phases of the trials that he had before the Roman authorities. And what we're going to take a look at, beginning at Mark chapter 14, verse 53, is this time where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin that night. We read, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. That night they led Jesus away to the home of the high priest. And right off from seeing this, we know that the Jewish leaders were breaking many of their own laws and customs that were deliberately engineered to protect the rights of the accused. Any civilized society in their system of courts and justice has an elaborate system of checks and balances that will help preserve the rights of the accused. You don't want to see a man or a woman arrested and convicted and tried unjustly. And so in the Jewish law, they had many different things that were meant to protect the rights of the accused. They said that you could only have a trial at the official meeting place of the Sanhedrin. This wasn't the case with them at this time. They were meeting here at the home of the high priest. They said you couldn't have a trial at night because you couldn't see the faces of the accused and the witnesses well enough. But they were having this trial at night. And in many other ways, they had what amounted to an illegal trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And as part of that illegality, they brought many false witnesses before Jesus who accused him before the Sanhedrin. Matter of fact, if you notice what they said about him, it's very interesting. It says, Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. It's very clever, the accusation they make against Jesus. First of all, he never said such a thing. Secondly, he said something similar to this. And thirdly, they accused him of something very serious. We know that Jesus never said anything just like this because these men were liars. They were making false accusations against Jesus. But secondly, we know that Jesus did talk about the temple of his body being destroyed and another temple being built that is a resurrection body for himself. That's recorded for us in the Gospel of John. But we see how clever these men were in their lying accusation in that they brought a lie that had some truth in it. You know, that's the most dangerous kind of lie, isn't it? 
something that's an outright lie. It's cut out of whole cloth. It's just no speck of truth in it all. Well, most people can recognize that. But then again, when a lie has some of the truth in it, when it's a half lie or a half truth, I should say, that's a whole lie, well, then it's even more difficult to discern and fight against. And that was a situation here because Jesus said something similar to what these men said. But what's interesting about it is that it was a very subtle and effective accusation because in that day and in that culture, it was a very serious thing to either practice or to promote the destruction or the desecration of a place of worship. And it didn't matter if it was a temple unto Jupiter or a temple unto Zeus or if it was a temple unto the living God there in Jerusalem. It was considered a capital offense to destroy or to desecrate a place of worship. But even though these men made a very clever accusation, we're also told here in verse 59, but not even then did their testimony agree. It was a false case, but they couldn't put together a good case. The false witnesses kept disagreeing with one another. And I want you to notice, they're not doing this under cross-examination. Jesus is silent. But the false witnesses and the testimony they bring themselves aren't even giving forth a consistent story. You see, it's harder to agree on a consistent lie than it is to just tell the simple truth. And so here they are before uh, Jesus and before the Sanhedrin making these false accusations. And the high priest feels it's going very badly at this point. How can they ever convict Jesus on the basis of these false accusations? They can't. And so this is what the high priest does in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? He's trying to provoke Jesus into saying something by which he can accuse himself. Well, of course, in any court of law, and especially the rights of the accused, were protected in the Jewish courts of Jesus' day. A man wasn't required to testify against himself, but the high priest is trying to goad him into doing that. As a matter of fact, the high priest, for dramatic effect, is standing up, if you notice, in verse 60. And maybe he's motioning dramatically with his hands. He's trying to make up and bluster what his case lacks in substance. And so he's trying to intimidate Jesus here. But it's not going to work, because if you notice here in verse 60, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Nothing. That's trust in God, isn't it? It's almost irresistible in us, the urge we have to defend ourselves when people speak against us. Jesus was silent. His silence is even more remarkable when we consider what a great defense he could have mounted. Remember the old Perry Mason television series? where the case would be lost and there'd be no hope for the accused. But then in a flash of courtroom brilliance, Perry Mason would figure out how to turn the case around and just make it all right, right there in the courtroom five minutes before the show ended. (laughs) Jesus could have outdone Perry Mason any day of the week. He could have called forth a big, long witness list. Your Honor, For my first witness, I'd like to call the man born blind. 
And then I'd like to call the leper that I healed. And then I want to call Zacchaeus and how I changed his life. Then I want to call Mary Magdalene. Then I want to call the 5,000 people that I fed with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. I want to call every one of them so they can testify how good the food was. And he keeps going on, a huge witness list. Finally, at the I called my 12 disciples up here, 11 of them. Judas had betrayed him, of course. I'll call all the, the, the 11 disciples up and have them testify as to what kind of man I am. They've seen me. They live with me for three years. And then I'll call up Lazarus. I raised him from the dead. What a trial. What a defense. What a, what a word Jesus could have said on his own behalf. He could have even called demons to the witness stand. They testified of his deity. They said that he was the son of God. What a trial it could have been. But Jesus was silent. He was silent until the high priest put him under a solemn oath. And that's what we find in verse 61. But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, we're not familiar with the language and the phrasing of the Jewish courts of Jesus' day, but what the high priest did with that phrase was he put Jesus under a solemn oath by which the witness was, com- was required to answer. And so Jesus will now answer, verse 62, and Jesus answered, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's quite an answer, isn't it? Makes you wonder who is really on trial here. Now, of course, Jesus was on trial. And you know how this story ends. He, he seemed to lose that trial, didn't he? The gavel is going to slam down and Jesus is going to be pronounced as guilty before this group of the Sanhedrin. But you know that Jesus really won in the end. Again, Jesus seemed to lose, but he really won. He's not the only one on trial here. That high priest is on trial. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I sit in glory at the right hand of my father, and I'm going to sit in judgment of you, Mr. High Priest. Any well-thinking man would have taken sober pause at those words. Would have said, wait a minute, maybe I should reconsider what I'm doing here. This man doesn't seem to be mad. He doesn't seem to be crazy. He seems to be the real deal. The religious leaders were on trial, and it certainly seems as if they won at this trial, but they didn't really win, even though they walked out of there, that courtroom, as free men. No, they really lost at this trial and had to stand before the Son of God in judgment. But when we look at Jesus in his amazing silence, his amazing bearing of suffering here at this trial, understand something. Why did he do it? He did it for you. He did it for me. Just as much as Jesus' hanging on the cross was part of that perfect work of redemption, so was his silence, so was his enduring of suffering here at his trial. His conduct at the trial showed his complete innocence, and it was all part of God's perfect plan of redemption. And friends, we must receive that gift of God if we're going to be right with him. Let me say it again. Jesus' conduct at his trial was part of God's perfect work of atonement, which we must receive. That great work of redemption and atonement didn't begin at the cross. It's active right here while Jesus is on trial. But don't ever forget that it's not just Jesus on trial. It's these religious leaders, or shouldn't we take it another step to say that we're on trial before the Lord God too? 
it's not really what, what Jesus, uh, what we think about Jesus that's most important. It's what he thinks about us that's most important. As Jesus looks down from heaven and looks at you, would he say, they're right with me? They've, they've confessed their sin. They've repented. They've put things right with me. Are you on trial before the Lord today? Does he want to know where you stand with him? Friends, just like these religious leaders, every one of us will be held to account for what we do with Jesus. Right now, today, God gives you the opportunity to give something to him. And do you know what you can give God? You can give God the right judgment about Jesus. You can get it right. You can say, I know who Jesus is. He's the son of the living God. He's the one who died on the cross in my place. He's the one who reigns in eternity right now because he's risen from the dead. You can give to God the gift of having the right judgment about who Jesus is. Might I say there's something else you can do in this? You can give a gift to others. You can tell other people about who Jesus is. Put yourself mentally back in that courtroom again. And there's Jesus. Instead of being silent, as the scriptures tell us he was, let's say he's calling up witnesses. And let's say by some miracle of time travel, you're in that courtroom and he calls you up to the witness stand. And he looks at you and he says, Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. What do you testify about who I am? He says, what have I done in your life that demonstrates that I'm the Son of God? What have I done in your life that demonstrates that I'm the Messiah, the Savior of sin? Could you say it? Because you know what's funny about this is that you go to a courtroom tomorrow. You call it your work or your school or the people that you hang around with every day. They're in a place where they need to evaluate Jesus, don't they? And you can give testimony to them about who Jesus is. You're a witness called to the witness stand. You can say, I know who Jesus is. I know what he's been in my life. I know what I've experienced him. I can tell you who Jesus is. You can inform other people about who Jesus is so that they know and that they can get the answer right and not face the terrible judgment that's reserved for those who get the answer wrong. Well, the Sanhedrin sure got the answer wrong. Take a look at verse 63. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be worthy of death. You can hear their voices rising in amens and in and yes, that's how it should be. And yes, he should die. In verse 65, then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him. And to beat him. And to say, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. It's terrible to picture in your mind, isn't it? Son of God who had never sinned. Son of God who just reached out in love to others. That face that had never had a sinful countenance on it once. Now is being beaten and abused and spat upon. Well, who did it? He says here in verse 65, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. I wonder who these officers were. They, they were just people around at the time, officials of the court. They weren't people who passed judgment on Jesus. They weren't the Sanhedrin. Oh, they mistreated Jesus in their own way. They were probably some of those who spit upon Jesus. But there were other people who were bold enough to go and strike Jesus just because somebody else condemned him. 
Isn't that a terrible place to be in? Those officers were on trial too. Those officers were on trial because Jesus never did anything evil to them. No, they, they judged Jesus purely on what somebody else said or did about him. The officers sure seemed to win, didn't they? It was their fists that landed the blows. It was their laughs that Jesus had to endure. They seemed to win, but they really lost. How tragic it is when people make up their mind about Jesus based on some misinformation, based on some lie that other people say about him. When people say, well, you know, he was just a man, or, or he's just one of many ways to heaven, or uh, all these other things about Jesus, didn't really die on a cross. No, it's all misinformation. Don't be like the officers. Don't make up your mind based just on what other people say about Jesus. Read the Bible for yourself. Read it and say, Lord, show me who Jesus is, and he'll show you. You see, those officers, they seem to be in the winner's circle there, but they really lost. But when we think about it, when we think about this suffering that Jesus endured at the hands of these hostile sinners, it's just tragic, it's sad. When you think about how it must have hurt him to be smacked across the face as he was blindfolded, you know, the human body has an amazing capacity to, to help shield itself and to lessen the impact of blows. Have you ever seen it on a football game? The quarterback takes the snap and he drops back to make a pass. And there's, you know, defenders blitzing at him to try to tackle him and such. And oftentimes you'll see it where the quarterback catches a, a defender rushing at him from the side. And just before the defender's about to just, just cream him. The quarterback will tuck his shoulder under and protect the ball and sort of shield himself from the blow. And boy, that, that linebacker will just plow into him. And you wonder how the guy can ever get up off the ground, but the quarterback does, and he makes a pass the next play. And you think, wow, well, a big part of it was, was he saw the guy coming, and in the moment before the blow hit him, he could prepare himself for it. But sometimes, as you're watching the football game, the quarterback drops back. And there a defender, maybe it's a linebacker, safety is coming from the blind side, from the quarterback's back. And he never sees him. And he hits the quarterback, and the quarterback has no idea that he's about to be hit. He doesn't do what he can do to shield himself, to brace himself from the hit. And when you see that, and you're watching at home, you just kind of go, oh. And you see that really shakes up the poor man. Well, that's how it was with Jesus. He was blindfolded and hit. Now, when you know a punch is coming, you can kind of roll with it a little bit. You can shield yourself a little bit. But when you have no idea that the blow is coming, there's nothing you can do to help yourself. You face the full fury of that blow. It's tragic to see Jesus undergoing such pain and humiliation. But you know, I think there's three things that we can draw from this scene alone. We can respond in three ways. First of all, doesn't this tell us that we should bravely bear pain and humiliation for the sake of Jesus ourselves? Think about it, friends. You face pain or humiliation for the sake of Jesus. There are people who will mock you if you declare yourself to be a Christian. There are people who will treat you like the biggest fool on the earth if you just simply believe that the Bible is true and that you should live your life in light of its truths. I know it hurts. I know it's humiliating to be treated that way. But should we expect any different? Look at what our master, look at what our forerunner suffered. That's what we should expect as well. It just sort of goes with the territory. But Jesus knows what it's like, and he went before us. 
I think it should also give us a sense of assurance and confidence in receiving the work that Jesus did for our redemption. Friends, that spit what was put upon his face so that we could have a clear countenance before God and that his face would shine upon us. And those accusations that were made against his character, it means no condemnation for me because he stood in my place. All that abuse that Jesus suffered, I should have suffered as a guilty sinner, but he was a substitute in my place taking it. Let me tell you another thing. Shouldn't this spur us on to greater and deeper and more passionate praise of God than ever before? The next time you take a moment out to worship God in song, I want you to picture in your mind Jesus being mocked and Jesus being spat upon and Jesus being beaten by the officers in the courtyard of the high priest. I want you to think about that scene of humiliation and degradation and resolve in your heart, Lord God, if they will mock you and beat you and treat you so shamefully, then I will praise you. You will hear something different from me, Lord. Every person that takes breath should worship God and how it hurts us when those people mock and humiliate our Lord. No, it should be different with us. But it wasn't different for one man, Peter. Look at verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, notice who it is that's speaking. It's not a man with a sword drawn. It's not an arresting army confronting Jesus here. It's simply a servant girl. It's a servant girl who says, Hey, I thought you were a friend of this man who's being accused, this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want you to see here that as he does this, it's very important to see that Jesus here, excuse me, that Peter simply says, I don't know this man at all. Look at verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. That was the first denial, wasn't it? Again, it wasn't a terrible, mean man questioning Peter. Just a servant girl, but he couldn't follow even that. He couldn't be faithful to the Lord, even under that questioning. Now at verse 69. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. (laughs) How badly Peter wanted to just remain anonymous. You know, maybe we should just compliment him for following Jesus at all. I mean, at the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples scattered. But you can also see, almost see Peter saying to himself, no, I said I wouldn't deny him. So I've got to meet up with Jesus and make a stand for him somehow. Maybe following that party as they work their way to the high priest's house. Peter sneaking along the darkened streets of Jerusalem, finally making his way to the high priest's house. And he says, well, I'll be the secret agent here. I'll stand by and maybe God will give me an opportunity to make a stand for for, uh, Jesus. And it's a little cold out here. I'll warm myself by the fire. So he goes by the fire and he lowers his cloak over his head like a hood. And he's just there warming himself by the fire. Maybe it was in the firelight's glow where, you know, sometimes a fire sort of sparks up and I almost see Peter, you know, moving away from the fire because it's sort of flared up. And when he moves away, somebody catches a side of him, the servant girl. Well, you're the man, aren't you? I thought you were with this Jesus fellow. No, no, not me. But then he's really messed up because now he's spoken. 
And just like it is, you know, in the United States, different regions have their own distinctive dialects. If somebody's from deep heart of, of, of Alabama, you can hear it when they talk. You could hear it when somebody was from Galilee. There were just things to their dialect. Yeah, well, that's a Galilean. And so when, when Peter spoke, everybody, well, you're from Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. Surely you're one of his followers. And if you notice, it goes from bad to worse. Verse 71 But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He's not even a name to Peter anymore. He's just just this man. Jesus was on trial and the religious leaders were on trial and the officers were on trial. But Peter was also on trial, wasn't he? And in this testing, he really did lose. There's no way you can come to the end of verse 71 and say that Peter was a winner. He was a loser. He denied Jesus. Let's not try to cover it up. Let's not try to assign a noble motive. Let's not try to beautify it at all. He denied Jesus. And it's especially grievous because he said he never would. He really did lose. Friends, aren't we just like Peter? There's been some way in your life or in my life where we've denied the Lord. There's been some place along the line where we said to God, I'll never do that. No, Lord, I'll never do that. And then one day you find yourself to have been the person who did it. You've denied the Lord in some way or another. You could try to make excuses. You could try to say, well, it's not you. But it is. You and I were just as guilty before God as Peter was. But the beautiful thing about it is that we can be restored just like Peter was. Look at verse 72. And a second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now there's no doubt that that Peter, when he was on trial, he really lost. But he's going to come out a winner. He's going to win in the end. And the reason why he's going to win at the end, look, first, it's because he remembered the words of Jesus. Now, it wasn't sweet to him that he remembered the words of Jesus. The the words of Jesus on this occasion brought pain to him. It brought tears to his eyes because he knew that he had failed the Lord so much. When he thought about it, he wanted to understand it wasn't the voice of the rooster that made Peter weep. It was the voice of Jesus. Because Jesus told him that this would happen. Just like Peter, we've all made promises to Jesus that we haven't kept. And when that's the case, it's appropriate for us to weep bitterly, to to confess and to repent before God. And then God will restore us. You see, the great truth in all of this, friends, is that the Bible doesn't leave us with a broken, denying Peter. It leaves us with a restored Peter. Jesus was absolutely committed to restoring Peter. Matter of fact, when he first rose from the dead and before he ever met with Peter, he told some of the people who were carrying the message of of his resurrection, he said, I want you to go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm risen from the dead. And then we know from another passage that, that, that Jesus had a private meeting with Peter upon his resurrection. And then he had another public meeting with Peter in John chapter 21, where three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And the three times where he gave him an opportunity to declare his love answered the three times that Peter denied him. You denied me publicly three times. I'm going to give you three times to proclaim your love for me. And he was so passionate about restoring Peter that I know 
He wants to restore you and I. You know, there's not a single person in this room who hasn't let down Jesus in some way. And there's not a single person in this room who should leave here unrestored. God wants to restore you. Even if we have denied Jesus, we can be restored. But it happens in those three things that happened to Peter. He confessed, he repented, and then he was restored. So remember that. We should bring confession and repentance and then receive the restoration that God would bring. Friends, the other great truth about this is that we can be those who help others who have denied Jesus. Think about it. You're you're not just listening to this message for you. Now it is for you. Please remember, it's for each one of us. Don't think that you're here this morning just listening for somebody else. No, it's for you. But it's also for other people in your life. Maybe you can bring the great news of Jesus' restoration to other people around you who've denied Jesus. And so the next time you see somebody just sinning against the Lord, just awfully disgracing God, don't look at them as a terrible sinner. Look at them as an opportunity for restoration. You can help those who have denied Jesus. You can do that. God wants to use you as an agent to bring restoration to other people. So friends, this is, this is a great opportunity that God's put before us. I read a story this week about an evangelist named Brownlow North. With a name like that, you know he was an Englishman. And he toured around England speaking in various churches, and one day he arrived in a church to speak there on that Sunday morning. And before the service started, a man passed by him very quickly. He never really got a look at the man's face, but a man passed by him very quickly and gave him an envelope. So as Brownlow North sat down during the service before he was going to preach, he opened up the envelope and he read the letter. Brownlow North was a very godly man, but he was a man who had a very wicked past. And when he was a young man, he lived a wild and a sinful life. And in that letter, the writer of the letter, who was present there that morning at church, he said, I know who you are, Brownlow North, and I know the kind of life that you've lived. I know the kind of sinner you were, And if you dare to stand up to preach the word of God this morning, I'm going to stand up in this congregation and I'm going to tell everybody exactly the kind of things that you used to do and exactly the kind of man that you were. How would you like that right before you go up to preach on a Sunday morning? So you know what North did? He took that letter up with him into the pulpit and he started his sermon by reading the letter to the entire congregation. And he said... Everything that the man says is true. I was that man. I did terrible, terrible things in my past. But then he said that he had repented and he had received Jesus' forgiveness and restoration. It just broke the hearts of the congregation. They realized that, that even though a man can terribly deny Jesus, he can be restored. And through that example, he drew many, many people to Christ. So friends, won't you receive God's restoration for you this morning? What we want you to do is to take this not just today, but to take it home with you. To spend time carefully considering before God how you've denied the Lord. Let's be real about it. But then to receive the restoration that he can give you in Jesus. Jesus holds his hand out to you today. Just come. Let's be restored. Let's pray together right now. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be real.
real about the ways that we've denied you. You know, Lord, we've sinned against you in ways that nobody knows. But we long for your restoration. So, Father, we pray that you'd bring us to a place of confession and repentance and restoration before you and that we'd receive it as a gift. And, Father, we pray, too, that you would use us as beacon lights of your love to give that restoration to other people. How great it is, Lord. How great it is to know the power of your restoration. We need it, God. Without it, Lord, we'd be completely set aside and worthless. But with it, you make us a treasure before you. You give us that beautiful standing in your family that we now rejoice in. So, Lord, help us to worship you now. Help us to worship you with the hearts of those who know we've been forgiven of great sin, and so we love you much. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.